Good morning, everyone. Uh, the sermon passage uh, for this uh, morning is 1 Thessalonians 4, 9 through 12, and that can be found on page 987 in the Pew Bible in front of you. 1 Thessalonians 4, 9 through 12, and this is the word of God. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another, for that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more, and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands as we have instructed you, so that you may live properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Well, this week, the, uh, the youth plan to take their annual trip down to King's Dominion, the amusement park down I-95, you know, when you when you visit these places, in addition to having a lot of fun, one of the inevitable experiences is the reality of waiting. So you want to go on the best rides? Well, you've got to wait. And so a big factor to the enjoyment of the experience is very simply whether or not you're a person who knows how to wait well. So making the most of the experience has a lot to do with how good you are at waiting. It's true at King's Dominion, and it seems it's true in the Christian life. So as we've been uh, working through Paul's first letter to the church in Thessalonica, the thing he's established really clearly for us is that the church is a people in waiting. So if you're a Christian, then a huge part of your life is the reality that you are a person in waiting. You can go back to chapter 1, verse 9. Paul says it like this. He says, you, you turn from, to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Paul says that Christians have been saved in order to wait. We've been saved in order to wait for Jesus. We're waiting for him to literally, physically return. We're waiting for the day when Jesus himself will come when he'll put away sin forever through judgment and he'll renew all of creation. This is our hope. This is the person and the thing for which we wait. And just like it, King's Dominion will be served best, the church will be served best, the world itself will be served best if Christians learn how to wait well. So the question of the letter is, well, what does it look like to wait well? You know, it seems to me, Paul has two emphases in this letter, two primary concerns, two, two things about which he would have the church be obsessive as they wait for the Lord. And before we kind of review what he says here, I wonder, what would, what would you say they ought to be? All right, so if I asked you, if I asked you, what are two things about which the church ought to obsess in these last days? What would you say? Or maybe more to the point, what if I ask more practically, if I ask you what two things is the church actually obsessing about in these last days, what would they be? What should they be? What are the, the main things the church must be concerned about in the last days? What are they for Paul? We're here in this letter, they're really clear. They are to be growth in holiness 
and growth in love. These, at least, are the two things he mentions at the end of chapter 3. Look back there. Chapter 3, verse 12. Paul's offering a prayer for them. May the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. When the Lord Jesus comes back, he wants people growing in love and growing in holiness. In these last days, as the church awaits the second coming of Christ, Paul has these two concerns. Is your church growing in holiness? And is your church growing in love? The first of these we covered last time we were in 1 Thessalonians. Remember that? Mike Jones led us so well through 1 Thessalonians 4, the first part of it. Chapter 4, verse 3, this is God's will for your life. I love it. The Bible gives you God's will for your life. And what is it? It's your sanctification, your growth in holiness. This is God's will for your life, that the more you wait, the more you become like Christ. Aim for that. The second thing we come to this morning, the truth that waiting well looks like growing in love. And this love has some, maybe, maybe some potentially unexpected application for how we spend our days. This is what we come to look at today. So here Paul continues on. 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 9 through 12, and he lays out two realities that help us understand what it means to wait well. These are two things I want us to consider this morning. One, as we wait, our love should be growing. And secondly, as we wait, our work should be continuing. Our love should be growing. Our work should be continuing. Let's take the first one there. As we wait, our love should be growing. Look at verses 9 and 10 of chapter 4. He says, now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia, but we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more. Okay, so you remember that the, the church in Thessalonica is a, is a really young church here in the New Testament, and being a young church, there was much that they had yet to learn theologically, right? Okay, so this is a church that has many doctrines left to master. They have many truths left to comprehend. We'll see this in the rest of chapters four and five where he instructs them on some very basic things. But one thing this church had down, one thing about which they did not need a lecture. And what is that in verse nine? It's brotherly love. This is a church which from its conception just knew how to love one another. Now concerning brotherly love, he says there, you have, you have no need of anyone to write to you. Can you imagine that? <laughs> a church for whom an apostolic instruction on love wasn't even necessary. That's what Paul says. It's quite a thought, isn't it? So I just think what an amazing gift of the Spirit this must have been to the city, to, to that whole region. This is actually what Paul points out, isn't it? He says, for that indeed, that is brotherly love. He said, that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. This is a church which was gaining an international reputation for the way they loved one another. Look back in chapter 1, verse 8 again. He says, For not only has the word of, Lord, uh, word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. This church did not need instruction in love. They themselves were the instruction on love. These people who months before didn't know God 
They had heard the gospel, they had turned from sin, and now they were loving one another in Christ in such a way that their example, their reputation for love, it was being respected all throughout the known world. And all of this, the letter makes clear, in the midst of really great affliction, really great persecution. This is the context of the church in Thessalonica. And this was, in fact, the central concern of the occasion of the letter. So Paul knows he he was made to leave this church really quickly after it was established. And he knows that when he left, persecution was going to come in right on his heels. And so he's wondering, how how are these believers responding to persecution? He says as much, chapter 3, verse 4. He says, for when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass and just as you know. All right, so Paul's established this church. He's writing to this church. He's wondering how are they, he knows that he's away from them. He, he, he loves them like a father, like a mother. He, he has these longings for them. He knows they're experiencing hard things while he's away from them. He's, how are they responding? And what did he find? While he's away, this church is excelling in brotherly love. They had, Paul says in verse 9, he says they'd been taught by God himself to love one another. You know, this is, this is language of the, the vision of the Old Testament prophets, right? When the Old Testament prophets looked forward to God's work in the new covenant, what they saw was that God was going to create a new people who because of God's, the work of God's spirit in them, they wouldn't even need to instruct one another. God himself would instruct them. And here in Thessalonica, it seems that through the occasion of affliction, of persecution, the Spirit of God was teaching these people what it means to love one another. This was a church in whom the Spirit was working in such a way through their affliction that they were becoming renowned for their love. And this kind of makes sense in a context of persecution, right? So think about it. When, when members of your church family begin to be arrested, when they begin to be beaten, when they begin to be persecuted, the need for brotherly love, the need for mutual care for one another, it comes into focus real quick, doesn't it? You know, we we tend to avoid persecution at all costs, and we, we certainly don't need to seek persecution. We don't need to seek affliction. The Lord will give it as he sees fit. But it seems to me, when we read the New Testament, we do well to remember that there are, there are things worse than persecution in the Christian life. Things like never actually learning to love one another like brothers and sisters. Things that are actually spurred on by the occasion of affliction and persecution. A church like Thessalonica, it was experiencing these things already. They didn't need the instruction. They were living it. They had to live it if they were going to survive as a church. But other churches, other churches in the New Testament that were particularly void of persecution, maybe like churches in our our day and time, maybe churches like ours, we kind of do need instruction on how to love one another, don't we? I think it's worth taking the occasion to ask, what exactly is brotherly love? What would you say? What is brotherly love? Well, what conjures up images of love more than Philadelphia? I thought about Googling an image of Philly and just putting it up. Just see what comes up and put it up there for Mike and Carol. Maybe that doesn't conjure up images of brotherly love. But it is the word that Paul uses here, Philadelphia. This is a compound Greek word. It's just two Greek words. 
used together. You have philos, that is love, and you have adelphos, that is brother. Philadelphia, love of the brother, brotherly love. The significant thing is that it's a way to speak of, it's a way to conceive of love that's explicitly familial. This is, this is family love, which means brotherly love requires being in the same family, which requires being of the same father. And the father in this instance is God himself, which means that the only way into genuinely brotherly love, genuine brotherly love is through the gospel. Because in the gospel, what we have is a God who is an eternal father. And this eternal father exists in eternal relationship with son and spirit. And the gospel is the good news that this father has plans to welcome in more sons and daughters into this relationship of eternal love by removing from them the guilt of their sin against him. This is, this is God the father's plan from before eternity passed. And this is the plan that he's executed in the Son, the incarnation of the Son. That is Jesus Christ coming to earth. The Son has come to earth in the person of Jesus Christ. He's taken on flesh. He has lived a perfectly righteous life, completely without sin. This makes him able to be a perfect sacrifice for sin, something that we could never be. And on the cross, in his death, Jesus laid down his perfect life to atone for the sins for all who would believe in him. He took their sin so that they could take his righteousness. And in his resurrection, Jesus has defeated the penalty of death that hangs over people because of sin. And now, what's happening is that through the Holy Spirit, God is breathing the new life of repentance and faith into people. And these are God's new adopted children. He is, he's been successful in securing for himself more brothers and sisters, more children for himself in Christ. And this is, this is God's eternal family now. This is the church. And it's in this way that a person enters into the realm of genuine brotherly love. We cannot have true brotherly love without truly being brothers. And we cannot truly be brothers without Christ. And listen, I would just encourage you, if you're here this morning and you don't know Christ, this is what it means. In the gospel, God is calling all people to recognize that they were created by him for his glory, to live with him forever in great, joyful relationship. But this thing called sin against God, this thing that we live in all the time, it has to be dealt with. And what he's saying is that you can turn from that sin, you can trust that Jesus Christ is the one who laid down his sin, uh, himself as a sacrifice for sin, and you can enter by faith into a relationship with the God who made you forever. You can do this today. And when you do, you not only get Jesus, you also get Jesus' family, the church. You get brotherly love. And this is what the passage is speaking of. It's speaking specifically of, of church love. Believers want love for one another in Christ. So this is what you and I have been called into as the church. So the reality, if you're a Christian, the reality is that in Christ, we have an eternal spiritual family. And that spiritual family consists of every believer who has, who does, and who will ever live. 
But right now, what the New Testament is very clear on, right now, the local, practical, embodied representation of that eternal spiritual family is right here. So you can like look around you. These are your Adelphos, your, your brothers and sisters. And the New Testament says your role is to give them your philos, your love. The love that Jesus has given to you, you give to one another. That's what we do. It's the church. Brotherly love. You know, and helpfully, the Bible doesn't leave us in the dark as to what it looks like to love one another. In fact, he's given us what's become known as an entire chapter on love, the love chapter, which is what? 1 Corinthians 13, right? Right, you probably heard this last at a wedding, and that's totally appropriate, right, to get a vision of love uh, from 1 Corinthians 13 at a wedding, but we should remember that 1 Corinthians 13 was written to the church as a picture of what love really is. You can flip over there if you want to. We're gonna spend a couple minutes there. 1 Corinthians 13. So I don't know about you, but I find... The love chapter of 1 Corinthians 13, very instructional. It's beautiful. It's also kind of alarming. And it's so alarming because what it reveals to us is that it's possible to do all kinds of, of kind of what we think as peak Christian things in the church without actually doing the Christian thing. That is to, to love the actual people that we find when we get to the church. So we won't read the whole thing there, 1 Corinthians 13, but in verses 1 through 3, you can, you can just see there, just listen. Paul says, for instance, he says that he says it's, it's possible to employ legitimate spiritual gifts without loving the people who are on the receiving end of them. He says, too, that he says a Christian can understand all kinds of mysterious spiritual realities and still lack the one thing required. That is love uh, for his brothers and sisters. He says a person can have legitimate faith and still not be walking in brotherly love. Paul says that a person, if a person employs every spiritual uh, gift they have in this church, if they, if they stand and speak with an angelic eloquence, if they, have, if they give every penny they have, if they do all this without a posture toward, of love toward these real people uh, right there physically with them, then they've missed it. Paul says they're nothing. The Bible is just great, isn't it? It, it takes these things that we tend to hold up as peak spirituality, and it says void of love, they're nothing. It tells us that possessing a gift, it, it's not actually the same thing as possessing love. So if, if these things aren't the heart of true brotherly love, then what is? So if love isn't inherently my gifts, if love isn't inherently my knowledge, my wisdom, what is it? Well, look there at 1 Corinthians 13, verse 4. Paul instructs the church. He says love is, is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. So, so as you look around at the church family that the Lord has given to you, to your brothers and sisters in Christ, and, and you desire to love them and you wonder what it looks like to actually love them, Paul tells us. So we, we won't go through all of these, but just look at a few of the things to give us the picture. First off, 
Paul says that, that love is patient. To genuinely love brothers and sisters in Christ means to suffer long with them. We, we were just thinking about this in the equipping class, but have you, ever, have you ever stopped to consider how patient the Lord must be with the world as it is? A world that's just full of sin and sinners. Every moment of every day, the Lord is being offended by the sins of the people that he created. And every moment, he forbears. You know, what this means is that the only reason the world continues on in spite of its fallenness is the patience of God, the love of God. In a similar way, the only way a church can possibly continue on in spite of its members' offenses against one another is their patience, their love for one another. So here's the, here's the, here's the reality as we find it in the New Testament, and maybe you might find it in your experience as well. When you join a church, you should assume the need for patience. So when you join a church and you find that there are people there who rub you the wrong way, people in small group, people in Bible study, people in fellowship time, people in sing, maybe Scott singing, I don't know what it might be. When you, in short, if, if you find that there are people in the church with whom you find it necessary to be patient, I think Paul would congratulate you on finding the true church. And right there, you're called to brotherly love because love is patient. The very heart of God, the very heart of the love of God is patience. And I'll just say, I mean, could it be that in his wisdom, in the church, through difficult people, the Lord himself is providing us little opportunities to step into the, the patience of love with which he loves us all the time. You continue on existing because the Lord is patient and kind, and he loves you. That's the second thing Paul mentions. He says that love is kind. Love is patient, and love is kind. I think this is a profound truth. The love of God is kind. You know, it's important to state, I think, that in the Bible, kindness, kindness is not just, it's not mere niceness, right? So kindness is not minding your manners. In the Bible, Kindness is a posture of mercy. Kindness is making the decision not to give people what they very obviously deserve. This is why God is said to be rich in loving kindness because God delights in relieving people of their guilt, of their shame. It's what he does. He delights in it. This is why throughout the New Testament, the exhortation to kindness is matched with things like forgiving one another, right? Paul says this in Ephesians 4. Be kind to one another. Uh, how might I do that, Paul? Forgive one another as you yourself have been forgiven in Christ. You know, what this means is that contrary to popular opinion, that kindness is not weakness. On the contrary, kindness is the very manifestation of spiritual strength in believers, having been chosen by the Father, having been forgiven in Christ, having been filled with the Holy Spirit, Christians are kind. Their love is patient and their love is kind. They are merciful, especially towards their new brothers and sisters in Christ. Brotherly love is kind. And it seems like this is kind of simply fleshed out in the rest of what Paul says there in, in 1 Corinthians 13. He says, he says, love is patient and kind. 
What, would that, what might that look like? Well, it doesn't envy. It doesn't boast. It's not arrogant and rude. It doesn't, it's not irritable. It's not resentful. It doesn't rejoice when things go wrong. Love doesn't insist on its own way. How about that one? Right? So we have something around 230 members here of the church. The reality is that the church simply cannot exist with 230 different kingdoms. There's one kingdom, and love does not insist on the kingdom of me, but on the kingdom of Christ. Instead of insisting on its own way, love loves. That is, it, it bears all things. It believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. This is love. And you can see, right, when you, when you read through this and you think about it in actual real practical application, you can see that this, like genuine, blood-bought, brotherly love, this is the miracle of the local church, right? So the miracle is not that someone can stand up in front and kind of speak an inspiring word, right? It's not that someone knows a lot of theology. These are good and right gifts from God. But to Paul's point, if we have them without the miracle of brotherly love by which we're patient and kind and endure with one another, we don't insist on our own way, we're nothing. You can see why Paul is so encouraged and enlivened by the brotherly love that he sees in Thessalonica, right? He loves it. We, we aspire to this, don't we? So how do we, how do we get this brotherly love? It seems like this could be a different sermon. Let me just encourage you in this. All right, so how do we get brotherly love? What I would say, by all means, do not resolve to get better at loving. All right? Listen, your flesh, it will give out before the benediction, okay? So how do we do it? Have you, have you ever noticed in the, in the New Testament how often Paul's exhortations to pray or to his exhortations to love, they're actually prayers? We saw this back in chapter 3. He's ending out that chapter with an exhortation to love, we think, but actually he's talking to God. May the Lord do this. So how do, how do we do it? I would just encourage you, pray. If you're lacking love, pray. Ask for it. Ask for the Spirit. Have you ever, have you ever noticed the overlap of the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5 and the description of love in 1 Corinthians 13? The fruit of the Spirit is what? Love and, and joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. In other words, this is what the Spirit does in the church. The Spirit produces this kind of posture towards one another. So pray. If you're looking for an application, how to serve the church this week, pray that our love would abound for one another. Pray for the Spirit to work uh, the love of God in the people of God. This is one thing we cannot have too much of. This is what Paul desires. Look there, back in First Thessalonians 4, verse 10. He says, we urge you, brothers, do this more and more. So let me just encourage you. The Bible, the Bible recognizes that loving other people, it's not the easiest thing to do. Loving people, uh, it means laying down your rights. It means laying down privileges. It means laying down your time, your very life. But this is what God's children do. This is brotherly love. So I just, I just encourage you, don't get complacent 
in this area. We pray to persevere. We, as we wait, we should be growing in love. This is a good ambition for us. All right, well, in the second part of this short passage, Paul takes what might feel like a bit of an unexpected turn. So I'm talking there at the middle of verse 10 through verse 12. And it seems that he does so in order to address a problem that was being created, maybe, maybe ironically, because of the very strong sense of brotherly love that was happening in this church. The problem in Thessalonica, maybe the one identified problem in the church of Thessalonica, it seems, was that genuine brotherly love was creating the opportunity for some people in the church to take advantage of love. That is to live off the love of others without working to provide for themselves. I think this leads us to a second thing that Paul wants us to know regarding the way that we wait well for the Lord. So first, as we wait, our love should be growing. Secondly, as we wait, our work should be continuing. Pick up in the middle of verse 10. He says, but we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. You know, so Paul doesn't do a ton of um, explaining the occasion of why he's writing these things, but there's a couple things that seem clear. So for one, Paul's flagging for us that in genuinely, genuinely loving churches, there could arise a temptation toward idleness. Idleness. Uh, maybe sloth is another way to think of it. He kind of more clearly, more directly explains this over in his second letter to the church. 2 Thessalonians 3. Listen there. So Paul's writing the same church. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who's walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you receive from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have that right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly, to earn their own living. Evidently in this church, there were some able-bodied people who had chosen to cease to work to support themselves. They kind of, they kind of put themselves in idle and... As a result, they were becoming an unnecessary burden to the church. And this, Paul says, is not how people were designed. So human beings, by design, and also because of sin, because of our fallen nature, are not creatures that handle idleness very well. So it turns out that having a lot of idle time is not the greatest thing for a person. It's not the greatest thing for a believer. I bet you see this in your own life, don't you? So think about a time maybe when you've had an extended period of idleness, of without something to do. Maybe it was a vacation that was too long. Maybe 
Uh, you feel like you've retired too early. Maybe it's a season of un unemployment or underemployment. My guess is that such freedom, it doesn't naturally lead you into a season of spiritual health and vitality. You know, COVID kind of gave us a, a global experiment in this, didn't it? So remember a few years ago? Remember when everybody was handled more idle time and just how, what a great time of flourishing that was for the world? We don't tend to excel at stewarding a lot of idle time. And one reason for this is simply that when a person lives in idleness, they have more bandwidth for temptation, for sin, for controversy, for drama, which leads to a second temptation that Paul flags for us, which is relevant. He knows that some Christians are very tempted to meddle in the affairs of other people. So these are, Paul addresses these people in 2 Thessalonians, right? He says they're people who are not busy, they're busy bodies. You see that in 2 Thessalonians 3.11? We hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. You, Paul's just, he's helpfully warning us against this a temptation that we'll all face to one degree or another. And that is to busy ourselves with the personal lives of other people. And not for the person, the legitimate uh, purpose of carrying out the one another commands, right? So we have those all over the New Testament. We're to know one another. We're to know sins and struggles, all these things, in order to serve one another well. He's not talking about that. He's talking about the temptation to know all these things, to meddle in these things, just to know a lot of details about people without any real concern or intention or opportunity to meet the needs that we find when we go there. It seems that this temptation, you know, it may not, the temptation may not necessarily be worse today, but the opportunities for something like this, they abound today, don't they? The amount of detailed information that we can know about people that we don't actually know, it's kind of overwhelming, isn't it? You know, in light of Paul's words, you know, we see that maybe it's not always the wisest thing to busy ourselves with the the personal information or circumstances or problem of other people for whom we can't actually serve, that we don't actually have opportunity to pray with or serve with or meet needs. So Paul has in mind these two temptations toward idleness and maybe another temptation that idleness might lead to, this, this meddling. And they can be strong. So what, what's Paul's encouragement he goes on there, he says, he says, to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you. There's a, there's a loving anecdote to, to busybodiness. For one, Paul would have us to cut off this temptation by minding our own affairs. That's what he says there in verse 11. You know, some translations say it straight up, say, they say, mind your business. <laughs> It's a bit of a shock, isn't it? The, the Bible telling us to mind our own business. But we can see how that this falls under a banner of brotherly love, right? When we don't meddle in the affairs of other people for our own amusement, we guard against hearts that may like this. A second uh, loving anecdote to idleness, Paul would have us pursue a good kind of busyness. He says, to work with your own hands as we instructed you. Paul commends productive, self-sustaining work. In the New Testament, to work and to support yourself and to support others 
and to have something to share, this is a great dignity. And it's actually a way that we love the people around us. Back in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, read it again. He says, Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. You know, again, this doesn't undercut the reality that's affirmed in the New Testament that the church will always have members who are in legitimate need of benevolent care, of provision. So we'll have the sick, the poor, the widow, the orphan. These are all people for whom the church must care and provide for. But as you see in the, in the New Testament, the way this happens is that the people who are able, the people who are healthy, they're working hard and they're living generously. Paul puts a, puts a helpful umbrella over this type of life there at the beginning of verse 11. Look there, he says, he encourages us. He says, aspire to live quietly. Paul commends to us what he calls a quiet life in the midst of all these various temptations against the contrary. You know, you know the principle seems to be that the world, listen, the world life it will bring enough noise, it will bring enough disruption and drama to the church. So you, church member, make it your ambition that what your presence brings to the local church is a quiet, non-meddling, hard-working life. So in the midst of a noisy, spiritually disruptive world, Paul would encourage each believer to bring this gift to the church, a life that's characterized by peace rather than disruption. He says, make this your ambition. This is a good goal. This is one very legitimate, very fruitful, very practical way that we can love one another in the church. And the effects of this type of life are really great. Paul says to those inside the church and those outside the church. Look at how Paul ends the passage there. Chapter 4, verse 11. He says, aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs, to work with your hands as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Paul says when we seek to love one another through the quiet, hardworking, non-meddling lives, we see two outcomes. One is we see a godly witness. He says this is one way that we walk properly before outsiders. So a church member who's church members who, who live out brotherly love through peaceful, hardworking lives, not busying themselves and gossip about another's business. Paul says this is, this is a great benefit to the people inside the church, and it's a proper witness to those outside the church. So a, a church full of people who work hard to love and take care of one another, this is a great living testimony to the type of people that the gospel creates. This is a good gift to the church, and it's a good witness to those outside the church. This type of life, it... It results in a godly witness. And secondly, it results in maybe what you might call godly independence. I think, I think we're rightly used to, in the Christian life, we're rightly used to, to saying, I mean, I say it all the time, that we're not created to be independent. And that's right. We're created to depend on the Lord, fully and functionally on the Lord. But what Paul's saying is there's a right independence. There's a right aim to not be dependent on others for your life's provision. He says it right there, walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. 
We don't have a ton of details from the Bible about what faithful work looks like. So we don't, you know, the Bible does, gives no detailed prescription for how many hours to work, you know, what salary to aim for. The 40-hour work week's like 100 years old, right? So he wasn't talking about that. It only gives us this reality. When you're a Christian, when you're a Christian who, by God's grace, is able to, to work to provide for yourself and your family, you have been given a great gift of godly freedom from dependence on the provision of others through which you can be a great blessing to the church. Again, there are, there are any number of times and seasons and reasons that a believer may not be able to provide for him or herself, right? In those cases, a person is rightly dependent on the provision of the church. The church should provide whatever they need. But what the Bible is saying is that it's a good goal over time for us to move out of dependence into the freedom of being dependent on no one. I think, I think most of us probably know the blessing of both realities, right? So we know the blessing of having others provide for us, right? Whether it was our parents when we were young, whether we've experienced this season of sickness or unemployment, underemployment, being provided for is an amazing blessing in the church. But we also know, and we should aim for, the great Christian blessing of providing for others. In the church, there will always be members in legitimate need. And what the New Testament says is that it should be the ambition of all of us through faithful work to have the means, to have the blessing of being one who provides for the needs of others. It's a great goal. The New Testament lays it out in a couple ways. Acts 20, 35. The apostle says, In all things, I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, It's more blessed to give than to receive. Uh, maybe a surprising exhortation in Ephesians 4, 28. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. So, as Paul's writing Ephesians, one of the great blessings for a thief-turned-Christian is that he now gets the joy, not of stealing from other people, but of working honestly so that he might have something to share with other people. It's amazing. This is what the gospel is to do. It's more blessed to give than to receive. Paul's not saying this as like something we like a whip that we hold over people, right? Stop taking and give, right? He's saying this is reality, and you know this to be true, right? It's more, blessed, it's more blessed to be able to give than to receive. What a blessing it is to give. It's a wonderfully joyful thing to be able to share what you have to meet the needs of others. And this is one reason that Christians work. We work, we work to get to give. And in this, we give testimony to the brotherly love that we've been given in Christ. So church, one way we love brothers and sisters in the church, we avoid idleness, we avoid meddling, we aim for quiet lives of hard, faithful work in order to get so that we can give. Our labor, in this instance, is our love. This is one great outworking, great outcome of brotherly love in the local church. This is, 
This is one, this is one way that we wait really well for the Lord Jesus. You know, as we, as we close this time in God's word and step into the Lord's Supper, I would just commend to us that this is, uh, the Lord's Supper is a really wonderful way to see very visibly the brotherly love that we've been given in Christ. In a, in a very real way, the Lord's Supper is brotherly love incarnate. We come as those who have been ransomed, who have been redeemed, who have been adopted, and who now in the family of the God who made us. Let's pray together. Father, we, we give thanks to you. We're, we're very grateful that you revealed your love to us. We're very grateful to be people who live in your love. And Father, we pray very simply that you would help us by your spirit to be people who uh, more consistently, more regularly, more habitually, more naturally uh, love one another sacrificially as we've been loved in Christ. We pray this um, so that it might glorify your name. Amen.